The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, hitting the bookshelves this month is a comprehensive historical analysis of the nation's armed forces. And some of the recurring themes discuss how its lack of funding and lack of resources over the century affected how its role would actually be defined. Uh, tracing all the way back to its earlier formations in 1922 in the post-Civil War period, the Irish uh, Defence Forces saw various developments. Now, the person who did this extraordinary work is with me now he's um, Dictionary of Irish Biography Managing Editor uh, Owen Kinsler and the book by the way is called The Irish Defence Forces 1922 to 2022 Owen good morning and welcome Morning Pat thanks for having me Now this is officially sanctioned Well it's commissioned it it was a commissioned work so the Defence Forces uh, asked me to do this and set up some some an editorial board to help oversee and advise me as it went along but it's it's very much kind of along the lines of my own research and how it worked out and the direction that I suppose the book took was yeah. based on my but own research. But did they um, when they saw your final manuscript given it was commissioned did they say hang on a second you can't put that in that's very embarrassing. No we never we never got to that stage and I think it was it was very clear from the start and I, I kind of made the point and, and they made the point as well when, when I came on board that I wanted to write the history and, and I write the Everything that I found within within the, not not only their archives but also within I suppose the controversial topics that would have been there from 1922 1923 right mm. up to the present day. Now, when were the defence forces formally constituted? I mean, you do hark back to the Irish Volunteers saying that may be the real genesis of the defence forces, but people would think of the divisions of the civil war, and it's really what happened after that. Yeah, exactly, and it, it's it's very much a part of the legacy of, or I suppose the, the beginnings of the defence forces is that their roots are very firmly in the Irish Volunteers and their establishment in 1913 and 1914, and from from February 1922 onwards, there's a very clear and conscious decision to. Adopt, I suppose the the insignia of the Irish Volunteers that's in the cap badge, the Defence Forces cap badge, and um, but also its its um, its structure, its organisation, and its people. And of course, the the the, tri- the 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 split over the treaty leads not just to political division but military division. And you yeah. have the IRA itself is is cleaved almost in two. And the, I suppose the task then of raising the national army from that point is made incredibly difficult uh, from February 1922 onwards. Yeah. Now uh, you, you go through the list of chiefs of staff, but also the commanders in chief, um, and Michael Collins being one of them. Yeah, Collins was of course the one of the, the the main the main people behind the initial impetus for the defence forces. He's uh, chief of staff and he's commander in chief from early 1922 up to his death at Bell and the Blois in, in August 1922 and that's I suppose that's a crucial point that's a crucial uh, inflection point for the defence forces because at that stage things could very easily have fallen apart because he was such a figurehead but they had been working quite hard behind the scenes and certainly from the summer after the battle for Dublin had been won uh, in the, during the Civil War in August or sorry in, in late June 1922 the defence forces started to put in place some of the structures that you would expect to find in a, a modern or a professional uh, defence mm. forces that begins to put to be put in place from July onwards, and it's because of that, and it's just those few weeks of, I suppose, organisation that allowed the, the the national army to continue on. Once Collins dies, and he's replaced, of course, as commander in chief by Mulcahy, okay. who also holds the post of minister for defence. That's very unusual. It's not a. It wouldn't have been an ideal scenario. It leads to quite a few difficulties with the provisional government and with the executive council then once um, I suppose normality is resumed after the civil war because you can't have a person in who has yeah. military command and civil command I suppose the defence supervising well. himself exactly basically. exactly, and that leads to serious now, issues what, what happened in the 1920s then when uh, we have all of these disaffected people who are on the wrong side of history yeah. they, they lost the civil war did any of them end up in the national army 
Not that I'm aware of, but of course what you have is, and the 1920s are a very interesting time for, for the National Army, and it becomes officially called the Defence Force on the 1st of October 1924. And there's a sense at the end of the Civil War that the National Army will become one of the pillars of the state, and that very quickly becomes apparent that that won't be the case. And while the Defence Forces are attempting to modernise, to professionalise, and to put in place a very, very strong pillar of the state, they're given none of the resources that they're required to do that. And even though they have military missions to America, they have army organisation boards, they put a huge amount of effort into what it would take to actually create a defence force that would work and, and do that for, for the state. So they're they put the, the architecture money. in place. They put the architecture in place, they put the reports in place, they ask for the money, they don't get it. And what you have is, of course, there's massive demobilisation in 1923. So the army goes from 55,000 down to about 14,000 oh, within, within the space of a year. That causes huge issues. You have uh, an, an army mutiny in March 19th. 1924, which is a very small scale mutiny among um, a, rel- a relatively small number of officer corps, um, but that is very quickly put down, and it's it's one of the I suppose one of the in- incidences that shows that the defence force has become mm. an, a part of the democratic machinery of the state. Yeah. Now it, it keeps on depleting. It was as low as five thousand. It gets to just over five thousand in 1931. Yeah, and it never goes above six thousand for the 1930s until 1938, 1939, when it's nearly too late but the, the I suppose the, the government has been assuming that they will be able to rapidly mobilise up a well-trained reserve which they put in place with the volunteer force which yeah. is one of Aiken's initiatives in 1934 um, that never really happens because if you have a I suppose a core regular army that has only 5,000 men in it they're under-resourced they're under-trained and then they're expected to train up a volunteer force around which would coalesce around them I suppose in a time of emergency which is what happens but of course the men aren't there and the training isn't there and the equipment now, when uh, World War Two breaks out, um, do they react quickly? Do they uh, arm? Uh, and again, trying to buy arms at this point, tanks or whatever yeah. other equipment they wanted, um, difficult when your neighbour is at war with Germany. Exactly. And Britain had always been our main supplier of military equipment. They do supplies and we do quite late in the day begin to acquire a handful of armoured cars, tanks, um, aircraft as well. And we do rapidly put in place the the ability to, I suppose, create a defence force that would withstand some form of invasion and would at least put up yeah. some kind of resistance. And they do that and it's actually one of the incredible organisational feats of the emergencies that we go from a force of, if you take 14,000, if you have volunteers and regular army, up to just over 43,000, 44,000 by 1942, well trained, not so well armed, but arms sufficiently yep. and would have been able to put up a credible resistance to invasion whether that came from Britain or from Germany. Now the, the different branches of the defence forces uh, the Air Corps uh, so called until relatively recently uh, and uh, the Irish Naval Service which was the Irish Marines. Well, it was the Marine Service and, and funnily enough uh, uh, during the Civil War the Air Corps is coming up on its 101st anniversary in three days actually would you believe um, but the, the, the Coastal Marine Service which is set up during the Civil War and which plays a, a very important part in terms of taking the West Coast in the in, in the summer of 1922 they allow the, the, the National Army to, co- to, to make some coast the landings they're disbanded in early 1923 and Mulcahy makes it I think it's a, it's a poor decision it's a very tactically poor decision he says it will be cheaper for us to reconstitute a, a naval service in the future but what we have now is too expensive and that of course leaves the island nation and island nation with no naval service until mm. 1940 what we do then is we try to put in place a, a naval service we buy four more t- motor torpedo boats from Britain which are completely unsuitable for coastal patrol 
hospitals and we have the a, uh, you have a picture of one of the uh, speeding uh, torpedo boats the yeah. torpedo tube visible on the side is scudding along yeah and they're perfectly they're perfectly capable for inshore patrol and for, for river patrol but once you get out onto the Irish Sea or sorry into the Atlantic coast not able to patrol those, mm. those areas we do also have the, the Muraku as well which is was originally known as HMS Helga I found this is, extraordinary yeah. when I read it uh, last night that the Helga which shelled the GPO yeah um, then became one of the founding <laughs> ships of the Irish Navy. It was uh, even in 1922 when it was it became one of the founding ships of the Coastal Marine Service, and then it's handed over to the Department of Agriculture for for coastal patrols, fishery patrols, and then we take the Defence Force to take it back in uh, in late 1939 and reconstitute it as part of the this new Marine Service. So uh, we uh, were neutral during World War Two, but seemingly there was military cooperation. Yeah, and I, I th- people will probably be very well aware of. The, I suppose the, the basic elements of that, and that's the you know our, our, the the Foynes, um airport as well, and a sort of general cooperation with the British. The fact that any any air crews that crash landed, whether they're American or British, were allowed to generally skip over the border back over to Northern Ireland. But the 18th military mission was set up by the British in the summer of 1940, which was to establish a formal line of communication between their general staff and the Irish Defence Forces general staff, and that's actually a crucial part of co- military cooperation between uh, Ireland and the Allies for the next up, up until around summer 1943 once the British troops leave Northern Ireland and, and head for head mm-hmm. for England and what we do and w- what they ask us to do is they ask us to fill in a, a number of questionnaires and give them as much information as we can so that in the event that we are invaded they can come across the border and give us as much assistance as they can mm-hmm. there's a couple of diplomatic things put in place here the it's very made very clear to them that if Germany were to invade us that they could not preempt that we had to be allowed to have a day or two to try and resist the Germans and then be seen to invite the British forces okay. rather than, you know, so that that, that was a, a very important part of, I suppose, our normalising relations between Ireland and Britain, which of course were at a hugely low ebb once Churchill mm-hmm. takes over. He's very, very aggressive in terms of asking Ireland to, to join so the So if the at the end of the war, 1945, we had some sort of a credible army, how quickly did it get depleted again? Very, very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. And it's there's a memorandum on the Defence Forces put, put together which which the General Staff lays out this is how the Defence Forces needs to be maintained at a level and I think they asked for about 15,000 men to be the, the, the establishment number, the, the routine number that they have. That's, De Valera says that's fine. You have to go and talk to the ministers and, to, and, and make the case for funding and for support. And of course, that's kind of, first of all, it's passing the book to the Defence mm. Forces, but it's also an impossibility because we are a very poor nation at that stage. There's resource shortages everywhere and the Defence Forces are not going to be at the top of the pile and never have been historically at the top of the pile for public funding and public um, investment. The next phase, I suppose, uh, there's some IRA activity in the 50s. Um, we also get involved in the UN and this ultimately leads to the operations in the Congo and other operations. And there were so many in your book. You list all of the operations currently underway and there are many. Yeah. And historically, how many there were. Um, but then the troubles come and that changes the role of the army on the island. Absolutely. And it, it's it's funny enough, it's a harking back to the 1920s. And during the 1920s and, and the 1930s, the Defence Forces were seen as a bulwark against subversive Republican activity. And when you have the Troubles break out in 1969, that becomes a much more important part of its role and it becomes uh, one of the most, one of the main pillars, I suppose, of its activities for the next decade or two. And in 1969, you have just over 8,000 personnel in uniform. And by 1977, that's up to 14,500. Uh, and just to give you, I suppose, 
a sense of the, the kind of work that they were doing at that stage. In 1975, you saw five and a half thousand military checkpoints along the border, um, nearly five and a half thousand joint patrols with the Gardaí along the border as well, a thousand escorts for explosives, for cash escorts as well. And the, the bomb disposal unit was called out um, on 300 occasions in 1975. So that gives you a sense mm. of the amount of work that's being done. And, it, and in the Troubles, one... Uh, soldier died. That's right, Private Patrick Kelly. He's, he's this was at the rescue of Don Tidy. Exactly, in December 1983, and he's killed along with a, a Garda a recruit as well. So interesting that uh, in spite of the troubles and the, the prevalence of, uh, you know, the, the paramilitary activity, um, far more people have died on UN service than died. Very much so, yeah, very much so. I think it's 87 now is, is the number that have died on, on UN service since we first went uh, went overseas in 1958 and that's it, that was a I suppose that was a huge moment for the defence forces because the 50s were to call them the doldrums is, is probably to, to give them a, too much credit because they were a terrible time for the defence force they were slowly withering on the vine in the words of one of the chiefs of staff who, who were called um, being commissioned during the 1950s personnel numbers had, had declined enormously and then we joined the the UN in 1955 and that's a game changer for the Defence Forces because it gives Ireland the chance to get involved in this sort of I suppose a new idea of peacekeeping missions. And now the latest phase uh, obviously with the Ukraine and the war the invasion by Putin we may be entering another well, we're crucial seeing it now, phase. Exactly yeah and and I think a lot of that though and I think maybe the, the withdrawal from UNDOF as well I mean these are all tied up with in terms of, of, of personnel and in terms of I suppose, shifting like you said priorities and, priorities and strategic priorities as well. Uh, the question of intelligence, uh, and I'm intrigued, you know, you had G2, uh, the military intelligence agency, and then de Valera comes to power in 1932, and you're wondering, did they get access to the G2 files? Well, there's, there's a famous burn order issued in, in 1932, um, where a lot of the records that would have existed from the Civil War were burned um, and I think there was probably a huge amount of fear that there would be reprisals or retributions over a lot of the activities that had gone on during the Civil War. So that was part of what happened. And of course, there's also a question or a query that will the Defence Forces willingly accept a Fianna Fáil government in 1932, given that just 10 years previously they'd been fighting against the vast majority of them during the Civil War. And it, I think it goes to show part of what had been embedded within the Defence Forces. And very, very early, like I said, even during the um, the Army Mutiny in 1924, there was no question that the Defence Forces would ever actually be anything other than an arm of the civil authority. Yeah. Uh, and uh, should there be a change of government and you get the political wing of the provisional IRA taking power in the Republic, what then? Well, I think history would show that there'll be... Because in Britain, obviously... <laughs> Uh, Sinn Féin and government in Northern Ireland don't, you know, they don't control any of that. Mm. That's controlled from London, but everything here is controlled from Dublin. That's right. Well, history would show that the Defence Forces will continue to act, I suppose, as, as the... Um, oh, will any burn orders be given is the question <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's a, a fascinating uh, document and uh, an important one because it gives us the history of the Defence Forces for uh, the first 100 years of its existence. It's published by Four Courts Press. It's replete with so many uh, pictures and also reminiscences from people who served. This this was one of my favourite parts to work on the book and we had this idea because Military Archives has a Military Archives Oral History Project I thought maybe it would be a good idea to have a couple of small excerpts at the end of the book which showed I give you a sense of the kind of work that Defence Forces personnel do and it grew because I was sitting down listening to them transcribing their, their reminiscences and it's incredible to listen to somebody talk about the fight at Atiri in 1980 or to listen to uh, Rory DeBarra talking about his time on the Eli Ethna in the Mediterranean in 2015 rescuing refugees it just gives you a 
real sense of the kind of work and the importance of the work that the Defence Forces have done in the past. Well, Owen Kinsella, author of uh, a very comprehensive volume, the, uh, the it's called The Irish Defence Forces, 1922 to 2022. Owen, thank you very much Thanks for, for much. joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.